0: Good morning, it's good to see you all. If this is your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart and I'm one of the pastors. Uh, We are starting uh, today, We're beginning the the Gospel of Mark, which is a new series that we're gonna be in for some time. Um, We're definitely looking forward to it. And so if you guys have your Bible, why don't you guys go ahead and meet me in the Gospel of Mark uh, chapter one, okay? The Gospel of Mark chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and slip your hand up and keep it raised really high and one of the ushers will be able to get you a copy of God's word. If you don't own a copy of God's, God's Word, the Bible, um, go ahead and keep the one that we're, ha- that we're handing out to you um, so that you can have a copy of God's Word for yourself. Um, interesting, this week, no Seahawks jerseys. <laughs> last week, lots of Seahawks jerseys. I'm not making fun. I'm not making fun of the fact that like the Seahawks lost. I was going for the Seahawks last week. I'm not making fun of the fact that ASU beat U of A last night in basketball. I'm just excited about those things. We get that stuff out of the way, then we talk about what's important, okay? So one, one thing I want to throw out to you guys is um, many. oftentimes we get questions about what are we doing globally? How can I be a part of what are we doing globally? Okay, next week... We are having our global gathering, and it's going to be after every single service, about 10 to 15 minutes, really short and brief. Uh, Jim Mullins, who you just saw on stage, will be leading that and talking specifically about our trip to China this upcoming summer. And so if you're interested in going on that trip, or you're interested in supporting someone, or just you just want to know what's happening here globally, primarily in Redemption Tempe, I highly recommend that you go next week. As soon as the service is over here in this room, you'll have an opportunity to hear about our, our efforts globally. And then Jim also mentioned that Redemption Peoria is getting started, and uh, we're excited. We're excited about that and the efforts that Sean and his team and Redemption and then Peoria will be uh, going through. So excited about that. Let me give you, uh, before we jump into the verses we have this morning, which is 1 through 11, I want to give you uh, kind of an overview, a brief overview of the Gospel of Mark. Um, When you come into reading um, a book of the Bible, you want to ask first, who wrote this book? like who it is that wrote that, um, what's the theme, what's the audience, and things like that, which begins to allow us to know and inform us what we're hearing. And so first, in the first four books of the New Testament, they are called gospels, right? And so you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, These are stories about the life of Jesus. The gospel in which we're going to be looking at is the gospel of Mark. The author of that is someone by the name of Mark, super genius, right? So Mark wrote this. Mark himself was not an eyewitness of Jesus. He actually wrote on behalf of the apostle Peter who walked with Jesus. In fact, when you read through Mark's Mark's gospel, what you're going to see is that every single story that he tells, Peter's in it. And I don't think Peter's just like, oh, yes, tell him I did this and then tell him I was there when this happened, right? Because, in fact, you see all Peter's flaws in it. And so Peter begins to communicate this. Another thing that we begin to understand about the Gospel of Mark is that it was written later, in the late 50s AD or early 60s. Um, Mark himself, we read about in the book of Acts, that he traveled along with some of the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul uh, church history lets us know that he went to Egypt and that he began to evangelize or share the gospel there. He started churches there. At one point, he was the bishop of Alexandria, and that we find out through church history that he was, he was uh, murdered or martyred for his faith, for trusting and believing in Jesus. And though that's what we have in the gospel of Mark. Now, here's some things you need to know about Mark. Different than all the other gospels. Mark is very, very fast-paced, which for me is all good, right? And so when you teach it, I'm going to talk even faster. We're going to have a record on fast I can talk. Um, <laughs> Mark goes, he says the word immediately over and over and over again. So his stories that you read about also in Luke or in Matthew are stories that are much shorter, and he goes on to the next. In fact, he doesn't even highlight as much Jesus' teachings as the other Gospels. Forty percent of his teaching are Jesus' teachings, um, and that's the lowest of all the Gospels. But what you see is Jesus' actions. So here's the theme. The theme of Mark is Mark himself highlighting that Jesus is God's son and that we should follow him. The theme of Mark is radical discipleship. How do you, in the day in which we live, follow Jesus? And so this is a question that you're going to hear me asking. Who is Jesus? Is he the son of God? And do you want to follow him? We're going to ask that question week after week after week because Mark is calling us to re-examine our lives, whether we believe in Jesus or we don't, and say, is this someone worthy of following and giving our whole life to and so we're going to be looking at Mark again for several several, several weeks to come, um, and that's the background. You can read more on the introduction to Mark. If you go to our website, we got more um, on that and that you can, you can read on. So for the sake of our time this morning, um, we're going to look at one through three, and there's a few points that I have for us here. One, we're going to look at the announcement of the gospel, the preparation of the gospel and the experience of the gospel. So the announcement of the gospel, the preparation of the gospel, and the experience of the gospel, and we want to walk through 1 through 11. So before we do that, would you guys go ahead and bow your heads with me? We're going to pray for our time, pray for Redemption Peoria, and then we'll get after it. God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you so much for the life and love of your son, Jesus. As always, God, we ask that you would exalt your son Christ. Not only here in Tempe, but you would be with the team of people and the people that are in attendance at Redemption Peoria today, that your favor and your blessing would be upon them. God, I pray that we'd be able to read your word as the narrative, as what it is, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. This is the time of the year for, for us as a church and many pastors here where we begin to see that there are a lot of people at, in our church that are getting married. A lot of you are getting married, and that's a really good thing. Uh, in fact, we tried to count it up between the pastors how many weddings we have this year, and it's something over the next eight months we have about 20-something weddings, um, which is a lot of weekends, hanging out, eating cake, drinking juice. Um <laughs> And, and hanging out with people. We're excited about that. And here's, here's what I love about weddings. One of the things I love about weddings is I get to be the closest to hearing these people um, share their vows. And they say, I'm going to have you from this day forward and so forth. They're, they're committing to each other, right? And, and if you've been married, you know that that's, that's hard. It's a good hard, but it's still hard. And so what, what you're looking at, you're going, you don't even know yet, right? And, and <laughs> you don't tell them until afterwards, kind of like, gotcha, right? But there's this commitment that they're making, and usually you don't know your spouse as well as you will know your spouse. And you don't understand that until you get to know your spouse more, and you go, oh, okay. All right? I love it, though. Um, and the other thing I love is when people do uh, their vow renewals. I think we should do that more often. We, we, we usually wait. Wait to 20 years, wait to 15, 30 years. Uh, so I'm, I'm almost convinced that we should do it every three years. that Make an event, Just show up to Timpy Town Lake, whoever wants to be there, get a pastor there, make it happen, it'd be fun, because there's something about saying, I still want to do this, and I still want to do this with you. There's kind of the first part where you get married, that, you know, people are engaged right now, and then there's the renewal. Uh, Several years, or two years ago, I had an opportunity to do my only vow renewal service. It was a good friend of mine from back home. He got married when we were 20 years old. Now, I wasn't a Christian, and my advice to him was, you're stupid, We're 20 years old. It's the best time of our life. It's never going to get, we can die tomorrow. It'll be great, right? What are you doing? Only Christian friend that I had, and he would say things like, you just don't understand. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand, right? I remember being at his bachelor party, which is is a lot of fun, a lot of just Christian stuff. And I wasn't really used to all of that stuff, but it was fun. A lot of, you know, catchphrase, things like that. (laughs) So here we were, all of his friends telling him, don't do it, don't do it. And then 10 years later, we're on the beach, and we're doing these vow renewals in California for them. And I just was, I mean, just their marriage alone is amazing. Their marriage is just a testimony of God's grace. They've had ups and downs and um, sick kids and just, just things that have just happened. And they were saying, we are more convinced of what we said 10 years ago today. Here's my hope for the gospel of Mark is that those of you who have never trusted in Christ, that you would enter some sort of an engagement stage where you begin to say, you know what? What I do know about Jesus, I'm going to commit. And I'm going to have that that moment where I trust in him and I give him everything, the little that I do know. And then for those of us who have already been walking with Jesus, that we begin to recalibrate our own lives and say, okay, you know what? I might have grown up around this, but I don't know if I really, really know and understand Jesus. I mean, you, you may say I I've, I've been a Christian, and in fact, I walk a really strong walk with Jesus. But I, I still want to be able to say, Lord, even more of what I know about You, and my walk with You, and understanding of life, I want to commit to You even more. In the same way that someone would do a vow commitment, and a renewal. And so we're looking at Mark and himself as he elevates Jesus, and just kind of just a, a way of reminder of how you read through the Gospels. It's a narrative. And I'm going to try as best as I can to teach it as a narrative. We have points just for sake of structure, but we're going to teach this as a narrative as fast as Mark moves, as we'll try to move. Give me some grace here. We talked through the Apostle Paul's teachings for for a long time. And so last service, I kept saying, Paul said this. Paul's not even a Christian yet when uh, when this stuff was happening. It's Mark. And so just correct me. It's Mark, Ricardo. It's totally fine, all right? Let's jump into it. The first point here is the announcement of the gospel, verse 1. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I want to pause there because there's, there's, there's a lot in there. First, when he says beginning, we see that as the beginning of the good news. That word, beginning, takes us back to the very beginning of the Bible when we hear in the beginning. And what Mark is marking here is that there is this new thing that God is doing, and not new as an afterthought, but the continuation of what God has already started. There's a new creation at work in the name of Jesus. And he says, in the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That second word, gospel, that's a word we use a lot here. We're constantly saying the gospel is central to everything that we do. And sometimes we don't step back and say, this is what the gospel is. When I was a youth pastor, i do this all the time with students. I'd say, hey, what is the what is the gospel? And every once in a while you get these, these answers. First, every once in a while you get, oh, I know what go- the gospel is. I know what gospel is. It's music that we listen to in the black church. <laughs> and I'm like, that's true, right? <laughs> the second, what you get is like, oh yeah, the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Like, those are the gospels. Like, no, th- that, they're called the gospels, but that's not the gospel. It can kind of get confusing. But here's what the gospel is. The gospel, first and foremost, we have to understand the difference between good advice and good news. Gospel means good news. What we often teach or what many people think about Christianity and the gospel is that it's good advice. Here's some things that you need to do. If you do those things, then your life will be better. If you don't do those things, you're going to hell. Right? That's, that's how it's taught. And it's like, whoa, that, well, thank you. Right? However, good news is not about what you do. Good news means that there's an event that has happened that elicits joy. And when the original audience of this particular gospel began to hear that there was gospel, that word wasn't new to them. It was often used in military battles where a a country would be off fighting for war, and then once they would win, somebody would run back and say, good news, we won the war, and they would elicit joy and praise and so forth. That was good news. And their life could be lived differently because of a decisive victory that has happened. Um, This would happen when there was a political change, there was a new emperor, they would come in and they would announce an event that has happened. And then this word good news was not something that's just new to the New Testament. Oftentimes we think that the good news, the gospel, God's entering into creation, entering into our human life is something that only happened in the New Testament. This is something God said he started a long time ago. In fact, when you read Isaiah chapter 61 here on the screen, verse 1 through 3, we begin to see what God talked about when he talked about this good news. He says, the spirit of the Lord... God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, and he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planning of the Lord, that he may be glorified. What Isaiah is talking about is how God himself was going to bring about this good news, and good news meant more than just the forgiveness of sins, more than just the saving of souls. But there would be understanding of personal as well as systemic issues that God would begin to break forth and entering with peace and justice and righteousness. And this would be an act of the Lord. So when they begin to hear this announcement of the gospel, it was that the gospel was coming, and this man named Jesus. And not just any Jesus, but Jesus Christ. And I've said this before. Oftentimes when we hear the name Jesus Christ, we think that, like, that's his last name, right? Like, if he was up the bat, Christ up the bat, right? And it's like, <laughs> that's not his last name. Um, that's, his, that's his title. That is the Greek translation of the Old Testament or the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah means chosen or anointed ruler and that the people of God wanted to know and they'd heard about the prophecies of this anointed ruler who was to come. But what Mark does is he highlights that the announcement of this gospel is that the Messiah is God himself. They were not expecting it to be God. And he says that this good news of what God is going to do, this good news of what God is continuing, is in Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, and then he adds this phrase, the Son of God. That the Messiah who they've long waited for is none other than God himself, the second person of the Trinity, and Jesus. And so at at the very outset of his letter here, Mark begins to say, this whole thing is about Jesus. If you want to understand the gospel, it's about Jesus. If you remove Jesus from the gospel, there's no gospel. That every single thing about the kingdom of God and the good news of Christ is wrapped up in a person. You know what that means, guys? It's not a set of rules or even just a set of beliefs or truths. It is wrapped up in the life, death, resurrection, miracles of none other than Jesus Christ. And so if we're going to understand what it means to follow him. We got to see Christ for who he is, the Messiah, God's son, of which without, there's no good news, but with, there's good news to the world. Amen? There's good news to the world. And so from there, what, what Mark begins to do, fast pace again, from there, he jumps back, to talking about a man by the name of John the Baptist. And we usually know, we've heard about John the Baptist. If you've been around church, you've heard. Um, and his, his, again, he's, he's not really Baptist or Presbyterian or anything like that. He, he just was somebody who baptized. So John the Baptizer. And so we go from understanding the announcement of the gospel to John's role as the preparation of the gospel, the preparation of how Jesus was entering into this world. Would you read with me in verses 2 and 3? It says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. What, what Mark does here is he takes a tapestry of verses. He, he says it's from Isaiah, which it is, but it's more than just Isaiah. You see these words echoed also in Exodus chapter 20, and t- um, verse 23, coming from the mouth of Moses. You also see this in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, coming from Malachi, And they all talk about this one who was to come, who was to be the next Elijah. Elijah who was taken away from God, that there would be this another Elijah, someone who would cry out in the wilderness, or another word for wilderness, the desert. And that he would say, here comes God. There's this preparation, there's this announcement. I wanted to show this video, but the, the, guys, the guys wouldn't let me. There is, you, could, you should YouTube it. Steve Harvey, who's a comedian, he talks about how, if he had the opportunity to introduce Jesus, and he goes for five minutes talking about, this man hails from a manger. His daddy has the greatest book ever. Um, his, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. People start standing up, they're clapping. He's like in this, this comedy show, and people start having church and everything, but the guys were afraid that we would start having church. They wouldn't let me, they wouldn't let me do it, right? <laughs> There's this announcement that John has. He's just saying, there is somebody coming. And what what Mark is doing here is he's saying this was a continuity. The reason why he goes back to the Old Testament text is he's saying this wasn't a new thing. Jesus didn't come because God thought, ah, we thought they were going to hang on, but let's go ahead and take care of it. This was always God's plan. And that he would send someone who would begin to tell the people. And in taking this tapestry of verses, this is something that would have been familiar with any of the people in the audience that were Jewish. Because when you take Isaiah chapter 40 all the way to chapter 55 in Isaiah, those are verses that the exiles begin to read. And the exiles were people in the Old Testament that were taken away from Jerusalem. Um, These are people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And during this time that they were away from the temple, that they begin to read these promises from the prophets. And these these promises begin to tell them about how God was going to return them from the exile. And what Mark is doing is now is taking those same verses, primarily this one about about. Um, about John the Baptist and saying how God himself is going to return us from the greatest exile, from darkness and from decay and from sin and how he's going to restore all things. That he's beginning to give hope, not just to Israel, but into the whole world. And so John becomes a man who begins to prepare the way for God, and he's out in the wilderness. And then we begin to hear about this John, the one who prepares the way for the gospel in verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. So we hear about John. John is out in the desert, which the desert in itself was a sign of deprivation, but it also was a sign where God met with his people, that John himself was out there saying, guys, there's somebody coming there's somebody coming and you gotta understand this for 400 years God didn't speak there was no prophet when the exiles came back to Jerusalem they rebuilt the temple that was torn down and something didn't happen that had happened before and that's a presence and the glory of God was not in that temple there was no prophets who spoke They did not hear the audible voice of God and they were silent and all of a sudden after 400 years a prophet they hear about this prophet who's out in the wilderness who's out in the desert and he's saying there was somebody coming get your life ready Get your life ready. And it says old and young and all people from Jerusalem were making their way out to the wilderness to see this man, John. And it gives a description about John and, and what John looks like. And we, we begin to read what John was dressing, and we think that's weird. Um, it wasn't even, it was even weird for people in their day. Most people didn't wear what it says that John has here. He was clothing camel's hair, um, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And then I was thinking, I know some people like that that go to the same coffee shop in Tempe that I go to. <laughs> right? They, I, for sure, right? John was out there, and he's not making a fashion statement by any means, right? They're just describing who he was. He was a man of the wilderness, and these people would come. Now, here's what was happening in his, in his baptisms is that people were coming out and they were coming into him and he was telling them of the Messiah who was to come he was telling them about Jesus and these people would confess their sin and confessing their sin not just the things they had done wrong but they trusted in themselves so often especially those of you who are just moral sweethearts some of you are just good people right whether you believe in Jesus or not you probably wouldn't do anything wrong and and sometimes it's hard for you to see the need of the cross because you're like I mean I want I know I need the cross But I ain't really that bad. Because so often we look at sin as only something that's behavioral. But our our biggest sin, our biggest sin, is realizing that we are self-sufficient. That we don't rely on God, but rely on ourselves. And so plenty of these people were coming out were very moral, religious, Jewish people. But they understood that they'd been trusting in themselves and they wanted to trust in God. But they'd been living things in their own ways, but not trusting in his way. And they were coming and they were confessing their sin and they were being baptized and they were repenting. I want to be able to explain two of those words, because we use those words in church a lot, and they're not always explained. Baptize and repentance, right? You hear those. Repent, believe, and be baptized. Well, first, the word baptize in itself, it just means immersed, or to dip, or to plunge into, right? That's what the word baptize means, and John was out there, and he was baptizing people. And their baptism was just a symbol of them acknowledging their need for God confessing their sin and acknowledging their need to God. It, wasn't, it, was, it was a declaration of, I no longer belong to myself, but I belong to God. It wasn't saying, wait till you are like the highest degree of Christian, which doesn't exist before you get baptized. That's what we do. Um, whenever we, um, especially the way we used to do baptisms, we used to meet with people more and hear their stories, and they would have been Christians for like 15 years. And it's like, I've been walking with you. How come you haven't been baptized? Ah, oh, I wasn't ready yet. You don't get ready for baptism. You trust in Christ, and then you get Baptized. It's not that you have to know us. I mean, here's what happened. I knew when someone was a new Christian because you'd ask them about stuff and they couldn't really explain a whole lot. And then you'd have somebody and they'd be explaining you every doctrine. Well, in, the, in, in Leviticus the other day when I was studying that for the 15th time, I'm like, man, you, you should be preaching. What are you doing, right? This baptism that they had was just saying, acknowledging their need for God, right? It means to immerse. Well, then the second word is repentance. And again, repentance oftentimes in church is usually you're doing bad, now do good. And as long as you're doing good, God's not going to get you. But if you're doing bad, God's going to get you. (laughs) Repentance in itself, by its word, it means a change of view and understanding. It means you're walking away in a particular ideology or philosophy or belief, and that you begin to turn from that particular view, and you change. Now, sometimes your behavior changes. But some of you, like I said, your behavior is already on point. Your belief may not be there. Your way of life may not be there. You might be doing all the things that God wants you to do. You could be very religious. You could be very compliant people. But it doesn't mean that you've had this radical heart transformation. And so what what Mark is talking about here when the people came out is they confessed their sins to God. And then that they turned from their way of living and their way of looking at life and viewing life. And now returning to who God was. And then they were being baptized. And so John was out there baptizing people ultimately pointing to Jesus. Now, this next point here uh, begins to be John's ultimate ministry, which is not just baptizing, but he was, again, preparing the way. He's preparing people for this good news that was to come in Jesus. Read with me in verse 7. Here's his message. He preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of hoof sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I love that. Um, He's saying that the guy who's coming after me I'm not, I can't even unlace his J's, right? And, and not Jordan's, Jesus' sandals. Um, and so he said, I can't, even, I, I, can't even, I can't even unlace his J's. Like, I'm not even worthy of that. Well, here's what you have from John that I think is an implication of how we could live in Christ. John's super humble. John is super humble. And I'm not. And we're not always. John is not saying about what he can do. And John's not saying, hey, check it out. It's been 400 years since God's spoken through a prophet check it out, I'm here, right? <laughs> he doesn't, he doesn't. He's saying, listen, this guy that I, I'm baptizing you, and you gotta think, people were coming to him going, wow, God's speaking through you, this is amazing, that was an amazing sermon, you, your outfit kind of off, but you, you look great, you, I mean, you're, you're awesome, and he's like, listen, you guys don't even understand. I'm just a dude, I'm just like you. There's a guy who's coming after me, the one who I'm preparing the way for, who's gonna bring the good news, and I'm not even worthy to unlace his sandals, right? And here's, here's why I say he was humble, and how we can learn from him. In their culture, Jewish people never got down to unlace anybody's sandals. That was saved for the lowly, lowliest of slaves, and not even Jewish slaves, but only Gentiles. He was saying, whoever we deem as the lowliest of the lowly, I can't even do what they do when it comes to this guy after me. The implication of that for us is that when we understand Jesus, when you we are just too fast-paced, guys, I don't think we step, sit, and meditate on what it is that Christ has done for us and who he is. Because if we do, there's no way we get up and we look at our our degrees or our intellect or or whatever it is that we can do. And I know we are a very accomplished group of people, right? We are. When we did that survey, one of the things we found is that 70% of the people who attend Redemption Tempe have at least a bachelor's degree. And most of them from the greatest university on Earth. (laughs) So, so there's some things that we can probably do. There's vocations that we have that we could be successful in. And I know everything's not great, but oftentimes we make it about our performance and we make it about us and simply not just realizing that everything that we have is a good gift from the Father who, comes from, who rains it down from above. That if our whole posture, not just one of us or two of us, but Christians in general would say, listen, all, I am who I am. I'm just a guy. I'm just a gal. I'm no different than you, no matter what it is you believe. But the one in whom comes after me, in our case, the one who went before us, I'm not even fit to unlace his shoes. That was John's posture. And then he begins to talk about Jesus, and he says, here's what I've done. I baptized you with water. That was just a symbol. That was something to show that you you were committing yourself to God. But he's coming, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit is what he says. And when he says he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, he's saying that he's not going to just sprinkle the Spirit on you. He's going to immerse you, dip you, plunge you in the life of the Spirit. And this was something that God had prophesized years and years ago in Joel and Ezekiel and other passages of how he would begin to work in people's hearts, that he would take our heart of stone that would not beat for him, and he himself in his sovereign love would remove it and put a heart of flesh. He lets us know this, that his spirit would be with us, that his people would follow him, and that he would enable us to be able to live a righteous life for him, not in ourselves, but in him. He goes, This Jesus, this guy who was coming, he's that guy. I'm not that dude. He goes, He is that guy who's coming and John becomes someone who prepares the gospel. I think we can learn a lot about that. We talked about evangelism last week and public faith and how to share. When it comes to how we share the gospel to people, we can learn a lot by getting out of the way and say, not me, but this guy behind me. This guy has gone before me. If there's a way in which we, in non-super churchy nerdy ways, can be able to just say it's Jesus and it's not me, instead of being able to promote whatever it is that we think that we're doing, we can learn a lot about John. So, so far, we see the announcement of the gospel, which is good news, And then we see the preparation that John actually goes to the forerunner to do what God said. And then lastly, the experience of the gospel. Um, This part is probably the most significant part of our, our, our first message this week. And this is verses 9 through 11. It says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased. I, I love this. I mean, right? Like I've baptized people before and every time you baptize somebody, it's amazing. What would it be like to baptize Jesus, right? If Jesus showed up, John's like, oh, this guy that's coming." there he is, right? He's just saying I can't even unlace his shoes and now he's gonna baptize Jesus. Like that's, that's, that's like the greatest honor in the world, right? Jesus is saying, "Hey, hey, uh, John, it's me. I don't know how he talked, but uh, <laughs> can I? Can you baptize me, right?" And John's doing that, but there's some things that Mark lets us know about this experiencing the gospel. But first, it looks at the words that he used. He uses three phrases here that that mean something um, in, in the Hebrew culture. The first one is when you read about it in verse 10. It says that the heavens were torn open. They're being torn open. The second one is a spirit descending on him like a dove. And the third is a voice from heaven. And so the reason why those three things were significant is the first when it says in verse 10 that heavens were torn torn open. When Jesus comes out of the water, the heavens were torn open. Um, That phrase, torn open, is usually communicated when God is entering in. And a better way to say it is when heaven is meeting earth. So we see it in the Old Testament, same language is used, when when Moses is, is leading the people out of Egypt and God parts the Red Sea, that same language is used. The other time that we see it in the gospel of Mark is when Jesus is crucified and then the the, uh, curtain of the temple is ripped open. There's this picture that we can now meet with God, that there's no barriers between us and God, that now because of Christ and because of who he is, the good news is that now we can experience and know God. So that was the first significant part, that it's been torn open, God is meeting with his people again. It's been 400 years, but God is meeting with his people. The second one, it says, the spirit is descended upon him like a dove. So Jesus comes out of the water, and the spirit descends upon him like a dove. It's a simile. It doesn't say that a dove came down. But the dove was interesting, too, because it related us back to creation. And in that time of the 400 years, the rabbis began to prepare teachings for the people to teach them about God's word. And one of the teachings that the rabbis had was that when they would begin to recount the Genesis creation story, that they would say that as the spirit hovered over the land, they would say the spirit hovered over the waters like a dove. And there's this picture here now where you see Jesus coming out and the spirit begin to move again, showing that he is God's son because the spirit was not bestowed upon anybody but God. And that's the second thing. The heavens being torn open, the spirit descending upon him, and not just upon him but into him, meaning the spirit is the one that ministered and led Jesus in his mission. And we'll learn more about that next week. And the third thing was the voice of heaven, that you begin to hear the voice of the Father speaking. And I want us to read that in in verse 11 here. He says, And the voice came from heaven... You are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased." There may not be, there may not be very many better words than that. There, may, there, just, there just may not be better words than a father telling a son. Let's just take the father and Jesus out of it. There may not be better words than for you to hear from your dad. You, I'm very pleased. I've shared this story with you guys before. I, I love 30 for 30s. I love any documentaries. You, if you can make a documentary about a documentary, I would watch that. And, and there's one of the 30 for 30s that I, I just love, and it's about a quarterback who grew up, and his dad was this, this really crazy trainer and would train his son to be the greatest athlete in the world, and he was probably one of the greatest athletes in the world. And, and his dad would always tell him when he was a kid, you'd be playing a football game, and he'd say, son, it's not the New York Giants. And then he'd go to college, and he goes, son, it's not the New York Giants. And he got his first start in the NFL as a quarterback, and he goes, dad, it, it's, uh, it's the New York Giants, right? And and he played the game, and this kid just had this crazy life of trying to win the approval of his dad. And he says, his away won the game, his dad called him and said, Son, I'm proud of you. And he goes, It was in that moment that I knew I was done playing football. I realized my whole life that's what I was looking for. There may not be better words from a father, and I love you, moms. I was raised by my mother. There may not be nothing better than hearing those words. And so when they begin to hear these words here, they heard God speak, the audible voice of God. It has not been, it's been years that now in this baptism, you have the gospel, and not just the gospel, what God is doing in this world in this baptism. And you say, well, what do you mean? There's, the significance of these verses usually get overlooked because we go, well, why is Jesus getting baptized? He's not even a sinner. We're not even looking at what's happening. We have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all in the same moment. We hardly ever see the Trinity in one moment. And you have here, just like you had in creation. In creation, you had God creating. You had the Word of God there making things happen. You had the Spirit hovering over. Here, at Jesus' baptism, you have God himself speaking. You have the Word of God made flesh who was Jesus, and you have the Spirit entering into the life of Jesus, showing there is a new work at hand. There's a new work. And the same way that God started things, he was the one that was continuing things. We have a triune God, and that matters for the gospel. It matters for our experience of the gospel. And let me explain why that matters. Because we have a God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. And the Trinity in itself is hard to explain cognitively. It's hard to be able to understand. And it, it, it's just, it's just a, it's a hard concept, however we get it. And here's where we get, the father is always loving the Son, and the Son is always loving the Father, and the Spirit's always loving each other. There's no one in the center. No one is saying, look at me. Everybody's saying, look at him, look at him, look at him, look at him. There's no self-centeredness. It's always self-otheredness. It's a self-giving love of the Father. And you say, okay, what does that mean? Well, when it comes to our understanding of things like God saying to Jesus, you are my beloved Son, meaning I love you, that word love is magnificent. And if you didn't have a God, let's just say, Let's just say some of you who say that you don't believe in God. If you don't have a God and there's no God, then that that word called love that we have, then it doesn't really mean anything. Because if we're just a process of natural selection and a couple random choices, then everything that we have, as we're taught in science often, is that it's been handed down to us from our genetic code in order to be able to survive. And so love in itself, at best, can be described as chemical things that go on in our brain. And you and I both know there's something when a father says, I love you, that can't just be something chemical. It's something deeply relational. If you have a unipersonal God, so one God, then what you what you may have is a God who creates, but even you don't have a God of love. That means he had to create in order to love. That he had to create creation and us in order to have somebody to love. That means he had to create people in order to receive joy. But if you have a God who's always been loving for all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that means he creates not for love, but out of love. That means he doesn't create in order to receive joy, but to give joy. That the very heart of creation was God entering in and saying, Let us make man in our own image that we may understand and have relationship and communion and fellowship with this love that's always existed of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The very act of redemption, in spite of our sin, is God entering in and giving us his son Jesus in order that we too may enter into that communion and that relationship. So love in itself becomes an action and primarily an action of another to us that we may receive the joy the reason why I labeled this last point the experience of the gospel, because when you begin to understand all that's happening here, and all that John is, or Mark is beginning to unfold for us in the rest of this, it starts first and foremost with God. God is the one who absolutely loves us. And so when we read these words now in verse 11 about a voice coming from heaven, talking to Jesus, the Father saying, you are my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased, when we understand that the gospel and stuff is that God so loved us that he sent Jesus, by us having faith in Jesus, that we would have what is known as a union with Christ, and you know what a union is? It's when you become united with somebody. My wife and I were just talking yesterday about what happens to her, happens to me. When I'm stressed, she becomes stressed. And she said this, and I said, "Well, she says that's reality." And I go, "Well, is that your reality?" She goes, "No, that's just reality." This often happens in my marriage. I'm usually wrong, and then, and she's right, and 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 she goes, "The two shall become one," and she's right. We become one, our bank accounts become one, everything becomes one. I feel what she feels and she feels what I feel. I receive what she receives and she receives what I receive, pros and cons. This union in Christ is now that we are in Christ and now whatever is said of him is now said of us. So now we enter into this text and we see how we begin to experience this good news. That when God the Father looks at Jesus and says, with you I'm well pleased, I've said this before, he hasn't done anything yet. He hasn't hit a home run. He hasn't brought home a great report card. He hasn't been a good big brother yet. He hasn't done anything. He just went underneath water and he came up and God yells from heaven, yes, with you I'm well pleased. And he's not just saying that to Jesus. He's saying that to everybody who throughout history will begin to place their faith in him. Before you do anything, before you lift a a finger, good or bad, that you get to experience the life and love of Jesus, of, of the Father through Jesus it becomes good news in which we can experience that we have this union with Christ. This is incredible to us. You see, Abraham, who we see as Father Abraham, he was known to be as a friend of God. And then you even see Moses was a servant of God, and David was a man after God's own heart. But only Jesus was known as God's son, and he invites us to that. So in Christ, we definitely become a friend of God and a servant of God. And we even become someone who's after God's own heart. But the only reason why we become someone after God's own heart is because God was after our own heart. And that's the reason why he sent Jesus. So you want to know why Jesus was baptized? Jesus was baptized ultimately in solidarity for you and I. We were the ones who were sinners, not him. That he so identified with us that he was showing for us physically what he was going to do for us spiritually. That he would take upon the sin of the world and every single child, woman, man, everyone that would believe in him and in being raised from the dead, that he would offer himself for us perfect, true repentance, purest repentance of doing everything that God wanted, and we can be accepted not by what we've done, but completely and what he's done. We live in a performance-based culture, and what Jesus is saying, performance is not the base, but Jesus is, amen? And so those beautiful words that we hear here, those beautiful words of saying, this is my son, and I love him, and I'm well-pleased with him, we can understand that. We can, we, can appro- we can appropriate that to us because that's what the Spirit does in our life now. is that that love is that beautiful word, that agape love, that unconditional love that says that God says his special object of affection is you. To the degree and in the intensity that he loves Jesus, he loves you. He loves you. Not because of what you've done or what you can't do. He loves you because he loves his son and he's always loved you. This was not an afterthought. When he created, he had you in mind and when Jesus was redeeming, he had you in mind. When it says that he's well-pleased with him, that literally means that he accepts you. We all know what it's like. Let's just, let's just take our adult hats off for a little bit, right? Where we lie and we pretend. We so want to be accepted. <laughs> and we want to be loved in such a way that we can't lose it. And Jesus came in this world so we may experience that through his life and his death and his resurrection. Amen? So the question that I'm going to keep asking you, do you want to follow him? Do you want to have a covenant renewal with him? Do you want to commit to him because he has committed to you and he's given his life and he's given his blood for it? Let's pray.